If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. How have women's lives transformed over the past 900 years? Acclaimed novelist Philippa Gregory studies the past nine centuries in her new non-fiction book, Normal Women, where she explores the challenges and triumphs women have experienced over this broad time span. I spoke to her to find out more about this fascinating history. So to start us off then, I want to begin by discussing the title of your book, Normal Women. How would you define a normal woman? The whole point of the title is it's a sort of joke. The research made it really, really clear to me that there is no such thing as a normal woman. There's centuries of people defining women, and they're always exclusive definitions. So they're usually women shouldn't be going on crusade, although so many women go on crusade that they finally lift the ban and say, okay, women can go on crusade, or women shouldn't have the vote. And then there's so much demand for that in the end, women do get the vote. So Almost all the definitions about women are those that say women can't do this or they shouldn't do this. And what I wanted by this deliberately provocative title, Normal Women, was to say there's all of these experiences. Every experience that a woman has is part of the normality of womanhood. So there's no such thing as abnormality in a woman. Mm. It's just what women do. And because you're writing about such a broad span and women from so many walks of life, it must have been difficult that so much of this history was unrecorded. How did you go about finding sources to tell you about these women? 
It's about reading the record. So women are in the record. I mean, women don't write for themselves or describe themselves till about the 1600s. So it's a long time of history since I started in 1066 before you actually get women writing for themselves. However, even before then, you have women's wills. You have a lot of criminal material. So every time women offend a man... He tends to write it down. So you have all of the criminal court records, you have a lot of the church court records, you have manor court records, and those also include women living their lives in perfectly, quote, normal ways, not criminal ways, you know, taking up tenancies or sharing tenancies with their husbands or taking up licenses for various jobs. And, of course, when you have a big political upheaval like what's sometimes called what Tyler's rebellion, the peasants' revolt, that's actually led by women and it's certainly staffed by women and they're not in the record but, you know, we've got their names. It's just a question of looking at the original records and tracing the women who are in there but they are in the record. It's just that secondary historians have only recently, I mean in the last hundred years, have only recently started to look for women and when they look for them they find them. And what drove you to write about this topic? It's been a long, it's been a long drive. I think what really struck me when I started my career as a novelist of women's fiction or history was that I kept finding a character and I went, she is extraordinary. She's present at these all events. She's active in all these events. She has a life of incredible incident and courage and activity and sometimes incredible manipulation and crime and I went that's an extraordinary woman and I'd write a novel about her and then you know I'd find another one and then I'd find another one and after I did this four or five times I started saying maybe I am not by incredible accident falling on one fascinating woman after another maybe all the women in history are leading lives of heroic event And even to live a normal life, even not to be a queen and not to be in a position of power or authority or wealth as a woman in medieval England means that you have to be incredibly active in your own interest just to survive. You mentioned that your book begins in 1066, spanning 900 years of history. And I want to start at the beginning. Why is it that you chose 1066? 1066 for women's history is an absolutely key year. I mean, William of Normandy invades, wins at the Battle of Hastings, and immediately brings into England an elite class of military violent invaders. So you have this terrific invasion of just men. It's not an immigration. It's not families or children or women coming in. It's just men coming in, and they take over the landowning at the very, very peak of it. So William owns the entire country by right of conquest. He restores about a fifth of it to the church in the forms of the landownings they already have. He keeps about a fifth of it to himself, which is massive amounts of land, which he creates as a royal forest, which excludes women from the lands that they traditionally gathered, hunted, got firewood, fished, all of those sorts of activities, put their animals out to graze. They're banned from those areas now. So it has tremendous impact on women. And then all of the lords of the manors are his chiefs of staff. So about 150 men literally take over big landownings and becomes lords of the castles or lords of the manors. So 
everybody, all the indigenous people in England, literally drop down a step because this new class has been put on top of them. But for women, that's particularly disastrous because the women landowners then suffer from patrimony, which William brings in, which is that by tradition and indeed by law, the heirs are going to be male. So heiresses become almost an endangered species. You know, you're very, very unlikely to inherit as a woman in the first decades after the Norman invasion. So working women lose access to their environment, which is where they make their living. Elite women lose access to their fortunes and everything they own becomes the property of the man who marries them. And everybody gets squeezed out of inheritance. But how did women still seize opportunities for themselves in this period? Well, that's the joy of the history, which is that on the one hand, it looks very, very bleak. And on the other hand, you find women come back. They don't come back immediately. In the generation after the invasion, you see a real disappearance of women landowners. And you can see in different counties, the women on the tenant rolls and the women landowners literally just disappear. They're replaced by men. But in some counties, Oxfordshire is one of them. People follow their own tradition, which is that anyone taking up a tenancy will take it up jointly with his wife. And if the man dies, then it, the woman becomes the tenant. That happens also for some land holdings. London's a great example of where women in particular are incredibly favoured, as it happens, by the laws of inheritance. So if a man dies, he often leaves the business to his widow and then she often marries somebody in the same trade. So you consolidate the wealth in the hands of women by not inheriting vertically, but inheriting horizontally. So there are all sorts of places where immediately, almost immediately, courageous, entrepreneurial, imaginative, efficient women move into the trades where they are currently being used as workers, or exploited as workers, or where they are exploited as a business partner by their husband and their husband's family. It's just ability. Women just move into it. Mm. And I'd like to skip forwards now by about two centuries to Magna Carta in 1215. You say that this accidentally gave women new rights. How was this? Well, it is accidental because the lords who are the ones who bring the Magna Carta and force the king to sign it, King John, they have no intention of freeing women in any way whatsoever. They have no interest in women's rights at this stage. But what they do have an interest in is women's inheritance and women's fortunes. So what's happening at the time is that if a woman becomes a widow, the king has the right to marry her to anyone who pays him a big enough bribe or to anyone of his choice. So he uses the widows to reward his favourites. And he gets sometimes a very substantial fee for that. If a woman is an heiress, then her wardship goes to the king also. So what the lords want to do is not free women at all, but they want to take this incredible profit, potential profit, into their own keepings. So they make the king sign a clause which says that he will not own widows. They will stay with their family and they need only marry if they want to. Well, what they don't realise is, of course, that puts all of the power in the hands of widows. And what we see immediately is many women not marrying the king's choice, not marrying their family's choice, some not marrying at all, some choosing not to remarry at all, and some marrying, in a sense, down a class 
under their status because they're marrying someone that they think will be useful or agreeable or helpful in their future life, not someone who pays the top dollar to their family. And another transformative moment that really stood out for me in the book is the arrival of the Black Death in the mid-14th century. What impact did this have on women's lives? Well, like the Norman invasion, it has a huge impact on everybody. The population of England is nearly halved by the time the Black Death has come and gone. So what you have is extraordinary vacancies and extraordinary opportunities opening up for every all the survivors and particularly for the women who survive, they can literally walk into any trade they want to be trained in because everybody is desperate for workers. And because of this, that it's a landmark moment in 1349. Women are paid on average equal to the male average wage. And it's the first and indeed last time in English history that women get equal pay. And even now, after decades of equal pay legislation. Women's pay is about three quarters of the average male pay. But in 1349, women were paid equally. And how is that undone? It's undone completely deliberately by the employers, of course, don't want to pay top wages. So they put pressure to force wages down. And one of the easiest ways to force wages down is to force down the wages of the least organised people, and that's women, because women are by and large doing casual work, and they're not necessarily in the workplace, they're often working for money, but from their home in, in home workshops. And so it's very easy for employers to make an employer's ring and force their wages down. And then you come to the Elizabethan years, where you start getting literally laws to regulate wages. And the first thing they do is they put in a legal differential. So women cannot be paid uh, the same as a man. And they take from women the right of movement. So a woman can't move her parish unless she can show that she has an employer to move to. And the parish that she goes to can refuse to accept her, send her back home. And are there ways in which women circumvent this? Not initially. I mean, the 1500s is a real time where women's status falls very much, very deliberately. Their status in the community falls. The arrival of Protestantism removes at a stroke the nunneries where women could go to join a women-only organisation, where they could get education, where they could get training, where they could rise in a women-only institution. So that, that's a major, major loss to women's status in society and the opportunities that are open to them. But in addition to that, the whole pressure on women's wages starts pretty well then and continues to the present time. And the only time you see women really coming out from under that is at times, again, of national emergency, where people need women workers so much they pay them a decent rate. Mm. And we'll come on to that later in the conversation. But for now, I want to investigate the idea of women at work in a bit more detail. You mentioned casual work, but can you really clarify for our listeners, what work were women expected and conversely not expected to do? It depends very much when you look at it. If you look at, say, immediately after the plague years, women tend to be responsible for all the work that takes place in and around the home. And the home then we have to remember, is a productive unit. It's like a small holding. Every home, every home in the country is like a little small holding. And the women 
tend to take primary responsibility for that, though men work on it too, because it's the family's little farm. What happens when the family needs cash? And that's something that comes about very, very much after the Norman invasion, when William of Normandy demands taxes and tithes in cash, not in goods which was more the pattern earlier. So when the family needs cash, it tends to be the husband who goes out to get a cash-paying job to supplement the family's income to bring in literally cash. But the breadwinning, the planting of grain and the milling of it and the making of bread, literally breadwinning, is very much a woman's speciality, which continues to happen at home. As the need for wages increase, as work outside the home becomes more and more attractive, we see more men going out to work, to work for an employer outside, and the woman continuing the productivity at home. And what she does is she also takes work outside the home, but she takes it as well as her productive work inside the home. So she's basically got two productive pieces of work. The one where the home produce is used, first of all, to feed the family, and secondly, sold in the marketplace or bartered with neighbours, and then her other work, which earns cash. But the most important central part of her work is the productive work for the home. And as the centuries go on, I mean, this is huge synopsis. I mean, it's a big book for a reason. But as the centuries go on, people start to think of the work that the woman does at the home as for free. And that's where you get this real blight in women's lives, which is that they're working for maybe eight, 10 hours at home, and that's regarded as non-productive. It is not money earning because the family is consuming it, but it is not non-productive because it's producing something which is very valuable. It means the family don't have to buy food in. It means that all of the cost of feeding and maintaining and clothes and equipment and food is borne by the woman. And that, in the incredible sleight of hand of economists, becomes invisible. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. 
Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. And for the next portion of our conversation, I'd like to focus specifically on women and faith. You say that there's a transition in this period where women go from being seen as temptresses connected to Eve to spiritual forces. How does this happen and what ramifications does it have? It's a huge change. There's a number of features playing into it. Women are initially regarded as sexually quite voracious and there are complaints even as late as the 1500s of women's appetites and their lack of self-control and the inability of men to control them. So that's the sort of the, the early medieval view of women as Eve, gossipy, unreliable, easily distracted, easily tempted. Then you get the cult of the Virgin Mary, which you know, gives us fantastic cathedrals in Europe and elsewhere, gives us shrines where the sort of the feminine side of God is explored and magnified and glamorized and glorified. And that's when you have this whole idea that there is a different view of women to Eve. It's some people later on in the 18th century call the new Eve, which is this new view of women altogether, which is of someone so pure that she gives birth without having sex. She is a virgin. She is a mother. She is the source of all goodness. So you get this real idolatry towards a female figure. You see it coming out also in the popularization of courtly love, where the heroine of the courtly love stories and poems and ballads is incredibly, exquisitely virginal, chaste in the early stories, active, thoughtful, spiritual woman. In the later stories, she becomes a bit more of a sort of object of desire. And the story is more about the male activity in seducing or raping her. But initially, the vision of Lady Mary comes into popular fiction, as it were, and popular dance and popular poetry and popular music, and gives us this other version of woman, who is the, the lady in the castle, elite, aristocratic, beautiful and chaste. And then it all goes to hell, it really does, because you get these two views of women being identified with two different classes of women. So when the 18th century comes to talk about women and the novels come to talk about women, and then the 19th century doctors come to talk about women, you get this idea that working class women are, as it were, the old Eve. They're physically robust. They're very strong. They're easily tempted. They're quite feckless. They're terribly talkative. And they're sexually free. So if you make a pass at a working-class woman, it doesn't really matter. There's no moral indignation that anybody could feel about it. And if you rape a working-class woman, it's only a problem if she's able to bring it to court and then she'll be in a court of her betters. So there's this absolute class distinction between these two sorts of women. And on the other hand, the elite woman becomes the lady. She is expected to be chaste. She is expected to be delicate, 
And that becomes pathologically fragile as the centuries go on till you get to the 19th century, where the lives that elite women are expected to lead make them ill if they're not ill to start off with once they've been strapped into a corset and fed tapeworm eggs to keep them thin, once they've been encouraged to see someone with consumption as the absolute top level of good looks, you know, wastingly thin, white, white, white skin, flushed cheeks with a fever. That becomes the ideal of beauty. And women try and achieve it. In addition to that, the elite women are chaste, and that is developed over time into a belief that elite women do not experience orgasm, do not experience sexual arousal. And if anybody catches an elite woman, if an elite woman has the misfortune to be caught in masturbation, say, or in any evidence of her having sexual arousal, that's treated as mental illness. So that's treated as a symptom of hysteria. And more than one doctor performs clitorectomies, what we'd now call female genital surgery, in order to make sure that an elite lady is indeed lacking in sexual desire. Mm. And I'd like to change topic at this point and briefly discuss women in war. And as part of this, I'd like to circle back to the medieval era, in particular, the Wars of the Roses, which you say could have just as easily been called the Mother's War. Why was that? Well, in what we now call the Wars of the Roses, at the time they called it the Cousins' War, and I say it should really be the Mother's War. Every woman has a stake. She has a son in the game. Every royal woman has a real reason to round up her army and go out and fight. And some of them go out and fight literally. They literally ride out at the heads of their troops. So Margaret of Anjou, who is defending her husband, Henry VI, and her son, Prince Edward, rides at the head of her troops and is notoriously a terror to the people of England, so much so that the citizens of London close their gates to her, though she is their queen, and ask her to withdraw her army. They're terrified of the army coming into London. It's not that they're on one side or another, they're just terrified of Margaret of Anjou and her army. On the other side, you have Cecily, the Rose of Raby, the wife of the Duke of York, who is there on her own, surrendering Ludlow, to the armies of Henry VI. So she's literally on the battlefield in a town under siege. She surrenders it. Her son, Edward, and then Richard, her son Edward has as his wife, Elizabeth Woodville, who holds the Tower of London in a siege against, while well, he's fighting elsewhere, and who is plots a number of revolutions against the incoming Henry Tudor. Henry Tudor, whose mother is Margaret Beaufort, who marries William Stanley only to have his army at the disposal of her son at the Battle of Bosworth. So they're all women who are, some of them actively militant, some of them involved in conspiracies, but they come from a long line of medieval women who hold their own castles or who, as lords of the manor, take up lordly service in the king's army. So we've got the names of several women who march into Wales at the head of their troop. And after thinking about these powerful women who are also mothers and wives, I wanted to focus specifically on marriage and how ideas around this have changed throughout the span that you describe in your book. Can you tell us a bit about this? Uh, well, the earliest marriage manual that I've seen is called the Old Serum Manual, the Serum Manual of Marriage, and that's in place around the 15th century. And the joy of it to me is that the bride 
is required to promise. She doesn't speak, but she does assent. And she's required to promise to be bonny and buxom at bed and board. And this is literally speaking to the belief in female sexuality, which I've described earlier. It's that she signs up to be sexually pleasant. She signs up to be willing. She signs up to be bonny, nice-looking, good-natured, good-tempered, and buxom. That's what they think a wife's duty is to be at that period. And this really, I mean, it deteriorates really rather tragically that uh, although women start to be making their own oaths, so women get a voice in the marriage service in later versions, when the Protestantism first comes in, the marriage service gets really trimmed down to a very narrow degree. There's no more bonny and buxom, but there is promising to obey and promising to obey stays in right the way up. So like when the late queen got married, she, although queen of England, promised to obey as all the previous queens of England had promised to obey, though it's completely unsuitable that a reigning monarch should obey anybody. Mm. And how does sexual violence come into the story? Sexual violence is absolutely in the story from the very beginning when the Norman conquerors come in with a drawn sword. It's a tragic, tragic story, which is that over nine centuries, we have not managed to eliminate violence from intimate relations between men and women. Mm. And one of the main themes that you can pick out regarding women's relationships with other women, having looked at such a broad span of history... Well, I think what's interesting is that we don't have a very adequate exploration of it. So men's relationship with their sons, who are often their heirs, is really very transparent because they are their heirs, they're put in place, and they ultimately inherit the fortune. And because of uh, patriarchy, they take their father's name. So it's very easy to see who is what man is the son of which man. It's very much harder to trace what woman is the son of which woman because those women will have changed their name. That generation will have changed their name, what, three times? So you have woman A who changes her name on marriage to B, and then she has her daughter who is B, and she changes her name on marriage to C. And if either of them remarry, then you get another name coming into the equation. So it's not very visible in the way that patriarchy and patrimony is highly visible. So you quite often miss the fact that this really interesting woman doing this over here is doing it in order to keep in touch or oblige or serve her mother, who is over here under a completely different name. It's hard to join those people up. So that relationship of women to women is not recorded well in the way we record history. And you have to really look for it and you have to really be aware of it. The other thing is the sexual relationships between women, which only when we started being interested in gay history and queer history and lesbian history, did we start seeing how very many women were connected as a sexual relationship, which was often running alongside or even inside a marriage. And that's completely obscured because sometimes it's secret or sometimes it's not discussed, which isn't the same as secret, but still makes it very difficult to find. And then I think the other relationship that we don't really explore at all enough and is almost invisible to us is relationships 
of friendships, deep, 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 intense friendships between women, which is maybe not sexual. And so it doesn't get swept up in the sort of retrospective history of sexuality because it's a platonic friendship. But for the women who experience it, it's probably the most important relationship in their lives. And they certainly describe it with deep, deep, deep significance. It's highly important to them. And that's where I think women's history has got so much to explore. And I also wanted to ask you about some of the women who dress as men, which you mentioned throughout your book. Could you introduce us to some of these characters? Well, there are very, very, very many of them. And some of them dress as men and pass as men in order to go and find something possibly adventure, possibly a missing husband. So Kit Kavanagh, who joins the army and is decorated in the 19th century, it might be 18th century. She's a famous woman who passes as a soldier in order initially to find her husband. There's another woman who becomes a sailor and sails as part of crew to the States and then back and serves as a sailor in America She initially is looking for her missing husband, but clearly she loves the life and she becomes a professional sailor, always disguised as a man. Someone like Charlotte Clark, an actress, she does it so that when she travels, she doesn't get pestered by men. But then in men's clothing, she passes as a man and she makes sexual approaches to women. So you've got all sorts of uses of male clothing as disguise, as escape from female identity, as protection, and as a chance to pass as a man for adventures, both sexual and external adventures. And as our conversation draws near to its end, I'd like to bring the story up to closer to the present day. In the 20th century, what event would you say had the biggest transformative impact on women's lives? It's always war. (laughs) I mean, as soon as the nation needs highly skilled, easily trained, hardworking, committed individuals who will literally turn out when they're asked, they turn around and they go like, okay, now we'll have the Women Reserve Army come out. And it's what's really brutal is to see in both world wars the demand for women to step up and to enter into work which had previously been regarded as either physically impossible, too hard, or intellectually impossible, too difficult, or too skilled for them, or too highly paid for them, or absolutely contrary to their physique, which would be, you know, they'd be rendered sterile by doing some of this work. As soon as the employers need women to take the place of men who have been conscripted by the government to go off to war, all of a sudden training is available, education is available, and women are brought in and do the work. In the First World War, they are paid much less than the men's skilled craft wage. And that's absolutely known by everybody. And they manage it because they say, remember, this is temporary. When the men come back from war, you will give your job up and you will go back to home, brackets, where you belong, darling. And that's what happens. And one of the heartbreaking pieces, and there are some really heartbreaking moments in this history, is when the men come back from war and the women immediately give up their work that they have just learned to do and love doing. And many of them say, we knew that we would give it up for the men to come back to work because men have to come back to 
well-paid work. That's part of our job as women, is to keep the jobs open for them, to do the work that they can't do it, and hand it back to them, because it matters most that men have jobs. That's what matters. Our own desire for work, our own love of work, our own enjoyment of the money that comes from working, that takes a back burner, we'll step back. Second World War, the government aren't so sure it's going to happen this time. You know, we're on a generation of women. There's there's more anxiety about women who now have the vote, of course, who now have more experience of working in male jobs. And so this time they tend to be paid equally, not because of anybody's desire for equal pay, but because that way the employers can't keep women on when men come back because they aren't a cheaper workforce. So you actually disadvantage women going for jobs after the war has ended because they are expecting the male wage. And the way you get men back to work is by not making them compete with equally skilled but lesser paid women. So each time women step forward, it's a remarkable step forward that they do each time they get pushed back when the war's over. And you mentioned in that answer that women had the right to vote. How important was this in changing women's lives? It's kind of disappointing to me. I mean, obviously, women have to have the vote because it's part of... It's more of... To me, it seems more of an emblem of equality, that you are considered capable of making a judgment of character, of educating yourself, of who is best, most likely to serve your purposes. But the effect of it is not very great in women's lives, I don't think. I mean, if we didn't have it, that would be a huge effect. So, you know, when you have Margaret Thatcher, 11 years in power, you don't have a vast increase of women in public life. You don't have a vast increase of concern and development of strategies to lift women and children out of poverty. You don't have a big step forward of equality. Actually getting women into the House of Commons makes less difference, I think, than getting women into work on an equal basis everywhere. That was Philippa Gregory. Her latest non-fiction book, Normal Women, 900 Years of Making History, is published by HarperCollins and available now. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden.